Welcome to the Politics Guys interview, conversations about American politics, economics, history, and culture with authors and researchers from across the ideological spectrum. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Greg Lukiana, attorney, New York Times bestselling author, and president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE. He's the author of Unlearning Liberty, Campus Censorship, and the End of American Debate, Freedom from Speech, and Fire's Guide to Free Speech on Campus. Most recently, he co-authored The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, along with Jonathan Haidt, which we'll be discussing today on the show. Uh, Greg Lukianoff, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for having me. You know, I thought we could start maybe with you telling us a little bit about how this book came about and uh, why you and, and Jonathan Haidt decided to write it. <laughs> well, you know, I always, uh, whenever I ask this question, I always want to ask, like, how, how, how real should I be about this? <laughs> and I think I, I think I decided that I'd actually be, you know, very blunt about it. Um, I'd been working in a First Amendment law, defending free speech on college campuses, since shortly after I graduated from law school um, in 2001. And uh, I became president of FIRE um, around 2006. And for my first two years of, of fighting, you know, in these fights and being, you know, isolated from my family in Philadelphia, um, even though I'd always struggled with depression, I fell into a really terrifyingly bad one um, that left me, as I talk about in detail, uh, that I've never actually revealed to anyone, let alone my wife or family, um, of how bad it was in the book. Um, I, I had that experience of typing, sort of like what what got me, you know, what, what got me committed yeah. <laughs> for for a couple of days, um, you know, with that kind of weird sort of self deception that this is just between me and you, computer. <laughs> um, but I, so I, you know, I, I really hit rock bottom. And uh, the thing that helped me out of it, the thing that was why, even though I still get you know, field depressions coming on, I can fight them back, uh, is cognitive behavioral therapy. And cognitive behavioral therapy uh, is, is really kind of amazing. You know, uh, you, you, I think you mentioned that you're a stoic, and I think of it in some ways as applied stoicism. <laughs> uh-huh. But even though that, that, you know, the name has somewhat of a bad connotation for people who don't really understand how deep and rich the philosophy actually is. It's not just, I have no feelings. It's more talking back to your feelings um, and, and uh, interrogating them. And one thing that cognitive behavioral therapy does to make this a practice is it gives you a list of common cognitive distortions that most people engage in, whether that's um, overgeneralization, labeling, catastrophizing is a very common one, which means exactly as it sounds. Um, I'm, I'm big on binary thinking, uh, and I don't mean that this is good, but my, my wife makes fun of me that I te- seem to have kind of like, this is going to be great, or it's going to be awful. And she's always, she, she's always like, it could actually be somewhere in between those two, Greg. And I'm like, right, right, right. I, I know that intellectually, just, you know, something, some glitch in my brain seems to, you know, something zero or one all the time. Um, and while I was learning these things, uh, and they creep up on you, it, it was about nine months into it, and I had many times of being like, you know, because it's a daily practice, you have to do it several times a day. You talk, you know, I, I give the example of going on a bad date, and it doesn't go well, and you say, you say to yourself, I'm going to die alone. <laughs> and, you, and you write down that thought and how much resonance it has for you. And, you know, if you're really in it, if you're really in anxiety, you know, that could feel like 100% true. Um, and, you, and you write that down. But then you ask yourself, like, what, what kind of 
cognitive distortion is this? One, it's catastrophizing. Two, it's mind reading. You don't really know if the person hated you or not. Um, the you know I've definitely had that actually turned out to be good um, as you know as far as the other person was concerned that I thought were terrible. Um, and you, with time, eventually these voices that we all have in our head to some degree um, don't have as much sway over you anymore. You can hear them and not take them quite as seriously. So while I was doing this, while I was practicing this twice a day myself, I was watching campus administrators um, pass policies and react in ways that kind of messaged to students that were in a really dangerous atmosphere. Um, and if someone, we, we, we have a, you know, a famous case in which a, um, a professor uh, put up a, a, a quote from Firefly, uh, the much beloved sci-fi epic um, that, that I, that, you know, all, all true nerds really miss. Oh yeah. Um, as it's a Joss Whedon show, and it talks about how it, it's it's this quote uh, from the from the captain saying basically, listen, I know you think you I know you think I'm a pirate and you think I'm going to kill you in your sleep, but you should understand that if we ever you know if that were ever happen, it would be in a duel. Like like we would be facing each other. Like there's no I'm not going to sneak up on you. That's not. That's not part of my code, essentially. But because it talks about shooting, um, he got investigated um, as a threat to the university. And one that he then put up a sign saying, um, no, fascism not allowed here, making fun of the, the overreaching of, of, of a University of Wisconsin satellite. The university pretty implausibly claimed that that was advocating for fascism, and he was even a bigger threat to the university. So, and I, I got used to the, this kind of modeling of catastrophizing. Also, in free speech zones, which are still extremely common across the country, um, universities pass these policies. Actually, no, they're they're a lot less common than they used to be. To be, to be fair, but that's partially after a lot of lawsuits. Where, for example, Texas Tech University, twenty-eight thousand students, they had only one. 20-foot-wide gazebo as the only place you could engage in quote-unquote free speech activities. Um, this included handing out newspapers, this included um, uh, organizing, and uh, you know, what I see in that is it's sending a message to students that even things as tame as leafletting are fraught with danger and risk, and that essentially free speech is something that should be contained and feared and controlled, even to ridiculous extents. Now, that was most of my career, and at the time, and for most of my career, um, it was administrators who were overreaching and students who thought it was funny. Uh, I thought it was funny or silly, and generally were the most free speech protective uh, people on campus. Um, and I, but I remember thinking at the time, it's like, well, you know, um, <laughs> I feel like administrators are modeling this kind of exaggerated, cognitively distorted um, thinking, but at least students aren't buying it. They all think this is kind of BS. But then sometime around 2013, 2014, um, I started to notice uh, seemingly overnight that you started having students demanding disinvitations for speakers, start demanding um, new new speech codes, start demanding uh, trigger warning policies. Uh, at some schools, they wanted them to be mandatory. Um, those, didn't, uh, the, it, that those didn't succeed. Um, microaggression policies, for example. And what made and this it's not unheard of for students to advocate for you know sort of what might, might be called enlightened censorship, uh, but it was rare in my experience. But the thing that really made it different was that it was grounded primarily or oftentimes in medicalized language. Um, they were arguing that not I think this person is regressive, not that I think this person's a bigot. They might have said that, that I think that also. 
but that having this person on my campus or having this argument on my campus is traumatic and it's psychologically harmful, usually not to the person who's saying it, but to someone some, someone else on campus will be harmed by the presence of this in a real medical way. And, you know, I'm I, after studying CBT, I became sort of a psychology hobbyist, and I was like, that doesn't sound right. It certainly isn't the kind of advice that a, you know, practice, uh, a, a um, psychiatrist or psychologist who teaches CBT would tell you, you know, that essentially if there's, you know, traumatic or difficult um, arguments out there or offensive arguments that you should make sure that you're never exposed to them. And that's kind of the opposite of what, what I thought, you know, someone trying to help someone would really say. So I brought this idea to someone I'd only met one other time, um, Jonathan Haidt, about how I feel like we're teaching the generation, uh, generation the habits of anxious and depressed people, uh, while at the same time uh, reducing the, the acceptable area for free speech. And he, to my surprise and delight, because I was already a real fan of his work, particularly the happiness hypothesis, um, he, he said, yes, let's write an article together. Um, and we wrote an article about a year later for The Atlantic, also called Toddling of the American Mind, where we talked about um, the relationship between cognitive behavioral therapy and speech. Uh, and the, the, our article was successful. We were pretty happy with it. We thought we were all done. But then after we wrote the article in mid, in the summer of 2015, things on campus just got a lot more intense. And for the first time ever within a, a year or two, I was actually seeing you know, things like the Milo riots and the, the Middlebury assault of Professor Stanger um, really unprecedented events. And at the same time, we looked up what the um, mental health outcomes were for students. And we thought, we kind of predicted internally that we thought we were going to see you know, some kind of increase. You know, if, you, if we're mm -hmm. teaching students the, the habits of anxious and depressed people, you should expect to see, you know, maybe, maybe a bump. And the numbers were much, much worse than we ever would have, would have guessed. So that's what led to the book and led to us doing a lot of research to sort of you know, refine what we were saying, correct some of what, what we initially thought, and expand, expand it to say that we're not just teaching the, a generation the habits of anxious and depressed people, we're teaching the, the, a generation the habits of anxious, depressed, and polarized people. Right. And, and in fact, you take the whole first part of the book to specifically look at the, these three, I guess you could call them in the language of CBT, cognitive distortions, in the book you call them three bad ideas or three yes. untruths. And a lot of what you've been talking about already is what I would characterize as what you call the untruth of fragility. And right. can you maybe more generally say uh, what that untruth is and why it's, well, mostly wrong? Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, so uh, one thing that we tried to repeat, and this is something we found ourselves going in, down sort of research holes that being much too uninteresting even for, <laughs> yeah. for readers to be to, to want to dive into. And at some point, we wanted to sort of figure out what are we ultimately trying to say. And we realized that essentially what we were trying to say in the original article was it's as if we are giving a generation of people the worst possible advice as if it was actually good advice. Yeah. And so we kind of built the book around this idea. It's also partially because my family, the way we give advice is we generally make fun of the dumb decision rather than like when, 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 my, when my sister Alex is angry about something, you know, I'll be like, you know what you should do with that anger, Alex? You should hold on to it and fixate <laughs> it for, on the, for the rest of your life. Yeah. And, and it, and we find it's actually, you know, it's more effective um, in some ways to, to, to say, I can't tell you exactly what you should do, but I can give you some advice on what you shouldn't. Um, and so the, 
the, the first great untruth that we talk about, and the reason why we call them great untruths, and one of the reasons why I was really so thrilled to write this piece with John, was because um, he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, which I already mentioned. But the whole point of that is to talk about what uh, modern psychology has to say about ancient wisdom traditions sort of stood the test of time. And he looks a lot at Stoic philosophy, but he also looks a lot at what I know, you know, studied more of myself, uh, Buddhism, and talks about, you know, what research shows is true about each, um, and finds some real threads uh, in, in all of these wisdom, uh, wisdom traditions. So we define a great untruth as being something that both modern psychology does not support, um, uh, wisdom traditions do not support, and will likely make your life um, more miserable yeah. if you believe in them. So the great untruth of fragility um, is, and we, did, we, we portray this as, as a very bad wise man giving, giving the, uh, the advice, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Right. And, uh, and of course, you know, that's a little bit of a play on Nietzsche. I always like to say I'm not actually that huge of a fan of Nietzsche, but the idea that people need challenge to thrive is pervasive. It's, it's, it's one of these things that in almost every wisdom tradition, you're going to see some version of the importance of challenge to survive and thrive. And we tie this to Nassim Taleb's idea of fragility, which is a wonderful book if people should read it. So, you know, it's Taleb, so it can be a little verbose. Yeah. He, he sometimes needs an editor. Um, and I'm, I'm, sure, you know, I'm, I'm always afraid saying that because <laughs> the next thing you know, you, you, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're in a tweet storm. Um, but, um, uh, it's about the idea that essentially we have a word for you know things that are fragile, of course, and we have words for things that are resistant, whether it's resilient or, or hardy or whatever. But weirdly, we don't have a word for something that um, needs stressors, that needs knocks around to get stronger. And this is a little bit ironic if you think about it, because, for example, the human body is anti-fragile. Uh, by that, we mean both that if you don't challenge it, that, it, that if you challenge it, it, it can become stronger, it can become healthier. But if you don't challenge it, um, all sorts of health problems uh, come into existence. You know, the, probably the most dramatic version of it is how quickly people's bodies um, atrophy when, you, when, when they go into space. Um, you know, our, the, the astronauts that we've been sending into space for a long time come back with really pretty serious injuries from that. So, um, our premise, and this is something that I really want people to understand, is that children, people are naturally anti-fragile. And we're doing something really wrong when we convince a naturally anti-fragile human being that they are fragile. Because it's one, not true. People are much more resilient than, than uh, we often think, or at least sometimes like the most catastrophic thinking supposes. But if you tell them that and they come to believe it, you can actually put them into that position where they haven't had enough experience with stressors and they have a self-belief, a schema about themselves that they are fragile, where you can be doing them very serious uh, uh, mental um, and de de developmental harm, all in the name of foolishly thinking you're somehow helping them. And, and so this ties in, well, to a lot of things, but one thing that it certainly ties into is this concept of, it seems to me, microaggressions. And in the book, my sense of things is that you make the argument that microaggressions are uh, often, maybe even most of the time, uh, sort of the result of students being actively encouraged by administrators and other folks to, to basically interpret what other people are saying and doing in the least generous way possible. Yeah. And so then 
right? By extension, the fault is really more in uh, the mind of the person who's considering him or herself the victim than in mm. the person who is supposedly an aggressor. Is that, I mean, am I getting that right? Yeah, you're getting part of it right. Okay. Um, and, and, uh, and it's something I always want to be really clear about when I talk about microaggressions. Um, and, I, and I don't know how much we expanded on this in the book. Uh, you know, and I have to give a little bit of audio, autobiography. My father's a Russian refugee who grew up in Yugoslavia. Okay. <laughs> My mother is Irish, and she grew up in Britain. My mom has a real emphasis on politeness above all things, because it's sort of like a poor Irish girl. So she be, had to, felt like she had to become even more British than the British. And my father comes from the much gruffer um, tradition of, you know, he will say in his accent, politeness is a form of, de- uh, of <laughs> is a form of deception. Um, and I joke my childhood was one big uh, re- repeated microaggression because my dad was constantly saying things that would, you know, absolutely horrify my mother and all of her relatives. Unsurprisingly, by the way, they're no longer married. Um, and uh, so I actually, at the same time, that, that gives me a lot of sensitivity to the idea that we do slight each other, we do insult each other, we do say bigoted uh, things, we do engage in racist uh, stereotypes and sexist stereotypes without even realizing what we're doing sometimes. And that makes it a very good uh, subject for academic study. And I really want to stress that, for academic study. Because once you actually make it into a policy, of course, once you make it into a policy at a university, it can take on very strange um, shapes, oh, yeah. including the, the UC system where they talk about um, America as a land of opportunity, um, America as a melting pot. Um, I think the most qualified person should get the job. They list all of those as microaggressions um, right off the top, which I don't think was really ever the intention of, of, of the people who originated the theory that we just blanketly call things that people could argue, you know, thinking they're being nice, um, to be a form of aggression against the oppressed. But as a functional, uh, in function, the thing that, we, that concerns us about microaggressions is that, and I actually have to go back to my father, my father would tell me that if you show up in a place and you think that they're going to go by your politeness norms, you're acting like hick. Um, and, you know, of course, in an un-PC way, saying uh-huh. acting like hick means that a lot of times, you know, people who think they're the most cosmopolitan people in the world, and the New Yorkers, uh, where I was actually born and lived for about 10 years, um, they go out and um, uh, they kind of assume that people are going to conform to their ideas of what politeness is. Whereas genuinely cosmopolitan people who have lived in many different cultures realize you always have to patient, um, should give the benefit of the doubt, try to figure out where someone is coming from. Meanwhile, if you fixate on uh, particularly the unintentional slight aspect of microaggressions, of how someone who meant well said something that nonetheless was sliding to me, that's kind of dooming a, uh, a genuinely pluralistic uh, diverse community to transforming what, uh, the kind of misunderstandings that would happen every day under those circumstances into things that actually divide people rather than create an opportunity for people right. to learn more about each other. Uh, you know, when, when, I, when I talk about it, um, I also, microaggressions are, are also, in a sense, uh, the cognitive distortion of magnification. But essentially, if you see that someone, you know, who's trying to be kind, says a slight, but, um, you know, because they don't know any better, um, you're giving that an awful lot of power over you, uh, if you if you fixate on it. It's not even good for your own mental health. But right. to be clear, I think there's something very valuable about knowing about microaggressions, but that there, are, there are some drawbacks as well. 
And this obviously ties into the the second untruth that you talk about in, in yeah. that first section, that untruth of emotional reasoning, right? Yes, and that's the one closest to my heart. <laughs> um, and the way we the way we explain that one in the form of the worst possible advice is always trust your feelings. And the reason why we liked that formulation was partially because this is the only one of the great untruths that doesn't necessarily sound immediately wrong. Anyone who's hearing it, anybody who you know has a romantic streak, or anybody who watches sappy movies, or sometimes reads self help books. Um, can have a little bit of, like, there, there's some, there feels like something cold and clinical about saying, don't always trust your feelings. And maybe to a degree, <laughs> to, to a degree there is. But for me, I, and I think it's mostly like when people talk about that, they're like, follow your heart. They mostly mean like, love who you want to love. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there, there, there's certainly truth in that. But your feelings are not always the best guide to what you should do. Um, I, I'm a big believer in uh, Susan David's, she, she had a perfect phrase for it. I realized I was trying to say what she said in, in one of her books, um, and she, uh, it, it would take me paragraphs to say this, and she boiled it down to a single line, which is, our emotions are information, not directions. Yeah. <laughs> that the fact you feel jealous, the fact you feel anger, the fact you feel rage, the fact you feel sadness, um, uh, doesn't mean you have to immediately do the thing that your body is telling you to do in reaction to that, whether it's, you know, take a drink or punch somebody or hide, um, that a lot of becoming emotionally mature, or if you're someone like me, emotionally, frankly, well, is you have to start talking back to these to try to figure out what they're telling you, what, what information they're actually giving you. Because sometimes your jealousy might actually just be about your own insecurity, and it's all entirely in your own head. I also like to be clear, also, sometimes it's entirely correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it, and, I, and I've had to explain this many times where people are like, you're just saying that, that people who um, believe in these ideas who want social justice are just crazy. And I'm like, no, I'm saying it's just helpful to go through the process of critically examining it um, because you absolutely can come to the conclusion that actually, you know what, in this case, my instincts were absolutely right. And I think that happens more often than people think. But particularly when you're depressed and anxious, I think it happens less often. So, the, so the, the theory of emotional reasoning, the, the theory of emotional reasoning, is the one that's most closely tied to the uh, wisdom traditions that teach you to have some amount of distance from your thoughts. I'm actually, I, I actually kind of like the, the the Buddhist approach a little bit more than the Stoic in some ways because mm-hmm. the ability to kind of see, you know, see your thoughts as things that are like weather in your brain. Right. I've, although I've never really quite gotten there myself, <laughs> um, is somehow. Uh, more appealing to me than always, you know, challenging it. Um, but at the same time, you know, if, uh, the Stoic, you know, you read Marcus Aurelius, you read Seneca, or you read Lucretius. Um, Lucretius was a Stoic, right? Um, yeah, I think he has, certainly had Stoic tendencies, yeah. Yeah, um, he, he, I or, mean, he's my favorite one to actually read. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry, what were you going to say? No, no, actually, I was just kind of a digression. Lucretius, I believe, was, uh, was an Epicurean, but there's still that kind of Hellenistic philosophy type of there's a lot of tie-in theirs and so forth. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and um, there, we talk about Boethius in the, in, mm-hmm. in the book and about how he created the fictional character of Lady Philosophy, right. who he could, um, while well, he was sentenced to death, uh-huh. he could kind of talk himself down um, by actually having this sort of, you know, moving into your prefrontal cortex and, ha- you know, having the discussion with Lady Philosophy kind of calmed him down about how even his own death could be understood as not the worst of all possible worlds. 
Um, so that's that, that's emotional reasoning. What, am I missed, uh, skip anything on that? I got off on a well, yeah, I, I, no, no, no. I, I, don't, <laughs> I, I enjoy these. Like, that's the nice thing about having a longer format is we can do that sort of thing. Um, oh, I, I, I do. I do love a good tangent. I, yeah. did, I did a talk at the Constitution Center with Jeff Rosen, and we got all, all we, we got into um, uh, Eastern traditions of whether or not uh, you know how tolerant you should be of of uh, of the crazy or harmful thoughts in uh-huh. your head and whether or not you can actually be a good person and think whatever you want. Uh, it, was a, it was a fun discussion for us. I'm not sure it was the best for an audience. Mostly wanted to hear about constitutional law. Well, yeah, yeah, actually it falls off a little bit. Uh, you know, I think probably at this point there are some listeners, especially listeners who are further to the left, who are saying, okay, fine, so you're, you're tougher than you think, toughen up, mm-hmm. and don't be so emotional, and it's easy for you guys to say this, I mean, uh, both, you know, for instance, you and Jonathan Haidt, you're, you're white males. And I think by most people's standards, it, they would say that you're privileged, elite white males. And, sure. and, and I certainly am, have enjoyed a lot of advantages from white male privilege as well. And mm-hmm. I, I know that the response from a lot of people of this is going to be is that essentially you don't get it. You're not really in a, none of us here are in a position to make this critique because we simply don't understand the experience of being regularly, systemically marginalized and and discriminated against and oppressed. And so things that may seem like not a big deal from our privileged standpoint feel Mm -hmm. entirely differently and come across entirely differently from that other standpoint. I'm sure you've heard that a a bunch of times. And so I'm interested in, you know, what your, what your thoughts on that are. I have a lot of thoughts on that. Um, and you know, one of them is that that troubles me is this um, idea that uh, human beings who don't share the same uh, experiences are essentially unknowable to other human beings. And this comes up in the context of creative writing and cultural appropriation. That you know, can a um, you know a white writer does are they even allowed to write a black character? Um, and th- this is very troubling to me because I do, I do, maybe it's naive, but I do think as, a, as human beings, there's more than unites us and separates us. And I do think that, um, uh, that empathy and the ability to sense what other people experience is, is, is isn't given enough credit. Um, I also, you know, as far as the way I've seen, in terms of privilege, um, you know, un- undoubtedly a lot of it, a lot of the theory is, is true. Um, but I think the, the reason why people bristle at it so much, um, you know, uh, when they're confronted with it, and then of course that that very bristling is saying that you you don't you know you you, you don't get it is, is is the next step in that argument, is it seems to function as part of what I've dubbed the perfect rhetorical fortress, that essentially on these institutions of higher education, we're spending a lot of cognitive energy figuring out ways that have nothing to do with the substance of someone's argument to not have to listen to them. So, for example, I, I went to Stanford in the late 90s. I also, you know, I, I could also, like, plead the fact that I'm a first-generation kid who grew up, you know, qualifying for public assistance. But, you know, I, I know that if people are really, like, up, and it started working when I was 11, but I know if people are really kind of, like, believers in this, they're not going to hear that. Right. that. That's just, I've, I've already been kind of written off, and that's, you know, I, I have to be at peace with that. But when it gets used rhetorically, when it gets used, when it gets used essentially to say, I don't have to listen to you because blah, um, it ends up making substantive uh, arguments extremely difficult. It, it's sort of the repackaging of the ad hominem. 
And so for the, the one that we had back when I was in law school was if you could label something conservative, you didn't have to listen to it. Mm-hmm. And this was something that I, to my shame, um, and I'm now kind of ashamed of it, I wouldn't read writers um, who were labeled as conservative. You know, not, and then finally read Edmund Burke, and I was like, oh, that's actually kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. And discovered people like Cass Sunstein um, thought that, that, that the idea of traditions actually having some amount of you know, hist- uh, historical validity, if they could actually stand the test of time, wasn't an unsophisticated argument. You know, even Alan Bloom's, you know, book that I, that people were, uh, the closing of the American mind, which by the way, our title is not, right. you know, we didn't, we actually <laughs> fought against this title. So, so, so it, and we lost, um, I, I never liked, I, I never liked the title, but then again, you know, I, since I had this aversion to reading something that had been dubbed conservative, I was like, actually, this is, you know, this, this concept of nihilism with a happy ending is a kind of deep, um, interesting idea. It's not, uh, and it gets said almost in the same breath as sort of like Dinesh D'Souza's book or, you know, uh, tenured radicals, um, when it actually brings up some interesting questions that should be considered. You know, I didn't read Thomas Sowell until I, uh, until I was much older, and I was like, wow, actually, that's, that's an argument that you should really have to, contend, <laughs> have to contend with. So, okay, I was just talking about like the first, the first level of protection in the perfect rhetorical fortress. But if you add to it a dimension that essentially uh, all of us participate, because arguably every single one of us have some amount of privilege. Some of us have more, some of us have less. Um, it ends up being applied fairly, it can be applied fairly um, uh, mechanically. Uh, but when it becomes something that essentially uh, is used as an argument tactic to sort of shut down an argument so you don't have to have it. And by the way, frankly, living in the Bay Area in San Francisco for, for, for a long time, it was uh, it was literally years before I was uh, I ever had an argument about you know being check, being told to check my privilege right. that wasn't a white person trying to <laughs> tell me that I should that, that I that I, I should back off. Yeah. Um, it, it was oh it was and generally people who came from much more economically privileged backgrounds the, than I did. Um, and I think that while privilege has a lot of validity to it, if it seemed primarily as a way to uh, to shift the topic away from identity of the individual arguer um, rather than the argument they're making, it's going to, con- it actually helps, it, it ends up devaluing the theory itself because people see it more as tactical rather than an essential truth. Yeah. And, and this, of course, ties right into the third great untruth, which is yeah. that untruth of us versus them. And that's the one that, I, that, that, that that's one of the ones that I, I think really. Uh, it's a point of departure um, from the original article to the book. A lot of the first two, two untruths overlap to some degree with what we said in the original article. But one thing that one of the many things that John and I have in common is a deep interest in uh, uh, polarization, particularly political polarization, group polarization, tribalism, about how easy it is to make even a group of people who look very much like each other, um, if you just create certain minimal conditions, you can make them feel less empathy for them and think of, uh, think of them as the other guys. As, as with things as ridiculous as this group is randomly assigned the blue shirts and this group is randomly assigned the red shirts. Right. And within a couple hours, they, they, they see the other guys as like, you know, we're all blue shirters here and we have common characteristics. It's, it's amazing how good the human mind is at is that, that. So um, the great untruth of a life is a battle between good people and evil people 
um, is something that I also learned a lot about um, living in different parts of the country and being stuck, by the way, in the culture war. Uh, because since I defend free speech on campus, this means if I'm doing my uh, my job right, that means I do get you know some uh, people who might be more liberal and sympathetic to enlightened censorship on campus. I also take an awful lot of flack from uh, religious people, uh, and including you know I'm a, I'm a atheist from the from the from the uh, northeast of the country who lived in San Francisco right. and worked for the ACLU you know like uh -huh. I'm the devil as yeah. far as they're concerned and I t and I, I see this and the and it reminds me that some of these things that we think of as as sort of truism that essentially you know um the the Solzhenitsyn quote I'm going to butcher it but essentially the the line between good and evil exists in the heart of of, of every man um that essentially, for the most part, we're all, you know, good and evil kind of at the same time. Now, I have been clear before, I do believe in the existence of genuine human evil, and I do believe that there are conditions you can create that cause it. But, my, but I am optimistic to believe that most of the time when you're in an argument, um, you're dealing with someone who... Uh, thinks they're motivated by good things, yeah. believes, um, you know, believes the arguments that are coming out of their mouth, and believe that their path is actually the one that's more likely to, to yeah. result in, 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 in the best for most people. But unfortunately, in this polarization, um, we call it a cycle in the book, but I see it more as a spiral. Um, it seems like we start with the position of, uh, of uh, what we, we ignore what we call the principle of charity in the book, which is, of course, you know, giving people the benefit of the doubt. And then things start to sort of spiral out of control as we're already so isolated from people who we disagree with anyway. And what I mean by isolated is if you look at um, where we live, right down to the city block, right down to individual counties, um, we, uh, we increasingly live in places that are more economically isolated. And that, and that was actually some of the scarier data that I looked at, um, that you know, individual city blocks um, cluster together, both in terms of political identity, but also in terms of wealth or lack of wealth. Um, and that when you add the internet to it, and you add social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook, which essentially reward you for um, uh, pat you on the back for having a really thick echo chamber, yeah. um, it does have this potential to spiral out of control. And, and I will say, whether or not Trump was elected in 2016, we would be, we would be in a very polarized state right now. Yeah. Of course, I do think, and I make no bones about it, that, that the fact that Trump was elected has uh, sped everything up. And yeah. I think that the cross-partisan animosity um, is so difficult that arguing about things like benefit of the doubt and trying to have conversations across lines of difference, that, that, that work feels not exactly hopeless right now, but to say the least daunting. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, you mentioned the media, and I actually wanted to ask you about that because uh, you just, in the book, you describe a lot of things that just, oh, wow, they're just incredible, um, real things that happen. But, you know, sometimes I wonder if maybe a lot of how we see this situation is is a function of the media, both the left and the right wing media, taking essentially a, a small number of things, and typically they seem to be at these elite schools, and just yeah. they kind of get blown out of proportion. I think, especially, I feel like there's this connection between the elite media and elite educational institutions, yep. and the sort of you know Harvard, Yale, Oberlin are sort of proxies for yep. the entire system, and yet. Most people are going to schools 
that are not at all like that. So are we making, you know what I'm saying? Are we making too much of this or what do you think about that? Uh, I think a lot about that because here, here's one of the things that's incredibly frustrating for me. I've been defending free speech on college campuses for my entire career. I actually hit 17 years um, yesterday. Oh, well, congratulations. <laughs> uh, my 17th year point. And as far as things that just drive me nuts is the bulk of fires cases don't take place at elite colleges and they're, hmm. and they don't really have that much to do with politics, left or right politics. Um, and I have a whole chapter in the book where I talk about, um, uh, where John and I talk about the uh, less sexy right, <laughs> motivators right. for some of the more ridiculous things you see on campus, which is fear of litigation, public relations, a little bit of the customer is always right, but I think that, that, that there's an argument that that's probably a lot what's going on there. I just haven't seen something that really indicates to me that's a major motivating factor, but concern about compliance with federal regulation, fear of lawsuits, public relations, those are very powerful for the you know, $70,000 a year uh, colleges, you know, and, and I'm talking here, I'm talking about mid-tier colleges that are mm -hmm. now charging uh, that amount, which is just absolutely, yeah. uh, absolutely scandalous. Um, and most of our cases really don't. So I talk about in the case, um, something that really kind of flips the model on its head um, about a situation at a college, a university of Northern Michigan, where they were sending warrant, scary warning letters to students who had used the psychological services at, uh, at their college saying, you may not talk about your thoughts of self-harm to any of your friends um, or risk or you risk discipline. Now, wow. to me, you know, it's just kind of like, wow, that's nuts, mm -hmm. um, to, be, to, to, uh, to put it simply, because, you know, this is talking about people who might already kind of depressed and telling them, oh, by the way, two things, you, are, you should isolate yourself, and two, you're really a burden on your friends. And, and there was an administrator at University of Northern Michigan who really said something that sounded very much like you're a burden on your friends. I'm like, have you ever been around a depressed person? You know how desperately they, they start to believe those kind of things? So, so, so we have a whole section where, like, I'd, I'd say probably chapter, I forget what chapter that is now, but it's called the, the bureaucracy of atheism. Right. We probably cover a good 30 different kinds of cases that don't fit the mold there and are more about keeping peace um, at, at, at colleges. Um, and I was horrified at one point when I, you know, I'll give some back, background information here. I went, <laughs> I went to do a, a op-ed for the New York Times back in 2012, and I was, and was told we had all these hor you know, horrible examples of outright political censorship, and many of them were against uh, people on the left. Um, and the uh, New York Times basically said, well, you're talking about Christopher New Newport Universities, but our readers are more interested in elite colleges. Uh -huh. yeah. So even, even though I've spent most of my career fighting these uh, battles at lesser-known colleges, there is a, a really more intense interest in the, in, in the cases at um, the, 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 where they're more elite. Meanwhile, also in the there are many circumstances I talk about, and I feel like I'm shouting about them. Um, we talk about the case of Lisa Durden. Lisa Durden is a professor at, in, at, a, at, a, in a, you know, uh, at a college in New Jersey, or was a professor. She went on Tucker Carlson to defend a, um, a, a Black Lives Matter party that was uh, limited to black students. It wasn't an official event, and she didn't even attend the party. But she went on, because she was like, I'll argue with Tucker Carlson, that's fine. After going on Tucker Carlson, um, citing fear of the right-wing backlash, they fired Lisa Durden. And I say it with this voice because I'm like, okay, so nobody's paying attention to these cases where we're talking about liberals getting fired. 
because amazingly, I feel like some of the political correctness, um, you know, uh, uh, like this, the perfect, pristine stereotype of political correctness run amok at a fancy college somehow gets the attention of both the right-wing media and, weirdly, the more prestigious left-wing media at the same time, where there's all of these orphan cases that people aren't paying attention to. But I do want to say, but that doesn't mean that, that the, the issues we're talking about when, it, when they do look exactly like political correctness don't matter. Right. Um, so we talk about cases like Rebecca Cuvel's, um case in which she wrote an article, you know, a thoughtful academic article, but she you know, said something very <laughs> risky, um, which was uh, making parallels between uh, Rachel Dolezal, who was a white woman who decided that she was actually a black woman, um, and uh, transgenderism to interrogate the idea of like, where, where are our lines about when we can decide what our identity is on any of these spectrums? And that was treated, you know, and I think it's fair to say pretty much like blasphemy. And she received denunciations from professors all over the country. Um, Hypatia, uh, you know, retracted the article. Um, and the thing that really made it feel much more like, like, a, like a state of, you know, we even talk about Durkheimian's, uh, Emil Durkheim's definition of witch hunt, because um, she started also receiving emails from people who had signed denunciations of her, saying, yeah, I'm really sorry what's happening to you, you know, as if that person was helpless to do anything yeah. about the weight of scorn coming down her. So there are, there, and these are some of the, when it comes to the, like the, the type of sort of, um, nasty kind of group thinky cases that do get the attention of the media. I have frankly seen more of those in the last five years than I have for most of my career. And they are very important. But, uh, but I do want to be clear. Every college has different issues when it comes to freedom of speech, and not all of them look like that. Sure. At the commuter colleges, for example, you're not going to see and you know, much about microaggressions or trigger warnings, but you might see a you're saying, you know, you can't, I mean, probably, but one of my all-time favorite cases was just so, it's just so simple. It was at Seminole College down in Florida, where a, uh, a student wanted a table for PETA, and she was told by an administrator that she couldn't table for PETA, I don't like PETA. And I was like, wow, you didn't even try, you didn't even, like, try to come up with an excuse. You, right. you were just like, I don't like them, you can't table for them. Well, you know, so this is a, this is a real thing. It's not just happening at the Harvards and the Yales. And certainly, I mean, I've been teaching now for over 20 years, and I've seen a big change in, particularly in, in administrations, you talked about how they become yeah. so incredibly risk-averse, I guess, or overprotective, I guess, helicopter administrations. And so I, the question, I guess, is, you know, how, how this happened? Because I remember, you know, I, I went to college in the, in the early 90s, and there were this whole PC wars thing. And so, yeah, these yeah. were issues, but it was in an atmosphere with, I felt like, a fairly robust support for free speech. And that's yep. all of a sudden changed. And so the big question, I think, is, well, what happened here? How did this, how did we get to this point where free speech on college campuses? I mean, I've seen surveys for college students saying that they're perfectly okay with curtailing free speech and that just stuns me. So yeah. what's going on here? Yeah. Um, and I think, well, we think there's a lot of factors at work here. Um, and I think that um, we talk about six different factors for why we think we're seeing some of the problems today. That includes polarization, changes in parenting. Probably the most interesting one, I think, is lack of free play, which, you know, mm -hmm. is a whole other topic we can get way into. But when it comes to free speech, I think... Uh, that um, I think Hannah Arendt talks about, like you could have absolutely 
the right idea. But if it's been around too long and a new generation, uh, everything that you say that might be true about it just sounds like another cliche. It doesn't matter if it's correct. Um, yeah. the, the new generation has to learn it themselves again or just refuse to learn it uh, again. And I think that um, it, at, in the highly polarized situation, particularly on campus, and by highly polarized, I mean that campuses, you know, there's no question about it, you know, lean decidedly to the left. Um, and I think actually speech codes uh, push people into even more politically homogeneous groups because what, it, what speech codes don't really change people's minds, but they do tell them to talk to the people you already agree with. Right. And I think there was a lot of that sort of, you know, group thinking and sort of pushing people back into these more ideologically uh, tight spheres. And if you're kind of on one side where you don't have a lot of exposure to good or thoughtful people who disagree with you, um, and you see all these things caused by these people that you believe you know, are, are, are evil or regressive, um, it seems only natural that after a while you'd be like, what's this thing that's keeping me from shutting these people down? Oh, the First Amendment? I ran into this when I was working at the ACLU of Northern California. I, at, in the late 90s, and this was like the people I would go to Burning Man with, you know, um, some of them, when they heard what I did, all, even back then, were kind of, the, the first thing that came to mind was like, you, oh, you, you're the person who opposes the hate speech codes that we think are good. And I'm like, that's the first thing yeah, that comes yeah, to your mind yeah. when you think about freedom of speech? We must be doing a terrible PR job. I mean, like, the, this whole, you know, Burning Man completely relies right. on the First Amendment. Um, so I think there, there's a problem with isolation from other people who, who you have goodwill with, who you disagree with. If, you, if you're in a more politically homogeneous atmosphere, um, that also erodes belief in it. And I also think that the stage we are in First Amendment law and freedom of speech law um, does make things a little tougher. So, for example, like since, we, since the First Amendment law has been so well established, some of the cases they might have grown up with were cases like the you know, animal crush videos um, cases where basically they're saying that um, you know, uh, a law is uh, banning the ability to tape you know, things that involve abuse of animals. Um, that was ruled unconstitutional. It's largely misunderstood though, because I'm very much in favor of that being protected, partially because how else are you going to know who's abusing animals? Right, right. And these are things that in some cases that will actually help shut down um, the ability to for people to find out how this is happening. Uh, but certainly Citizens United, you know, it was a very polarizing case. I don't blame anybody for being on the other uh, other side of that. They associate that with speech. That wasn't a great PR moment for people um, who disagree with, you know, um, with the decision. Um, but I do think a lot of it, you know, and for that matter, you know, some of the anti-bullying cases uh, early on, and I think this is a generation that has a lot of sympathy, as I do, for the anti-bullying movement, but they see that some will be first successful First Amendment challenges to bullying part of policy. Now, for me, of course, the irony is I've seen plenty of cases on, on uh, at high schools where the anti-bullying policies end up being used to defend university principals or right. university teachers from quote-unquote being bullied by their students, yeah. which is, of course just was not the original intention of it. But I can see lots of natural forces that would lead people to be less uh, protective of free speech. And most important, probably in, in front of them, is I think a lot of these students can't really think in a credible way that they will ever get in trouble for their own opinion on campus. And, that, and with that kind of idea that um, 
enlightened censorship is always going to be on your side, uh, and that, you, that might actually be accurate, unfortunately, I think is going to lead to an erosion of faith uh, in freedom of speech in a situation where it's only uh, possible because people feel so secure that their free speech rights will be protected. Yeah. So I, I know we're running a, a little short on time, but I'd like to end on a hopefully a more positive note. Uh, uh, talk a little bit about solutions, which you which you look at in the last part of your book, the things we need to do to have wiser kids, wiser universities, and you know ultimately uh, a wiser society. Now, mm-hmm. uh, on the podcast, we focus on politics and policy, so I was hoping maybe specifically you could talk a little bit about what you think government either can do or maybe sometimes i guess can stop doing that would and contribute to doing. these goals yeah because yeah. you know at a governmental level i think the department of education is already doing this to some degree has to make um harassment policies and recommendations uh clear um uh, and what we saw uh going back to about 2013 was the department of education came up with a definition of harassment that was so broad and vague that if you could directly challenge it in court, it would not stand up for a minute. And so we've been advocating for just using the standards for harassment that are actually um, expounded by the Supreme Court. <laughs> That's it. Just, just follow what the Supreme Court's actually saying. Um, give some clarity. And if there's clarity, you end up with, with fewer of these overreaction cases where, where university administrators or university presidents right. think that they have to punish Professors, and by the way, a, a spate of these cases have all been women, oftentimes feminist professors, getting in trouble for saying things in class, which is not the irony should not be lost in anybody. But as harassment, because the standards are too vague. Um, but th- thankfully, to, to a degree, that's happening. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, it's one of these things. Like, since I'm a little leery about things being mandated. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it limits me a little bit because I, I, for example, would love to see um, gap years become a, uh, uh, right. a uh, an expectation, but I wouldn't want it to be the law, you know? Mm-hmm. I'd like, um, and I think that when it comes to the lack of autonomy that I think this generation of, of, of particularly the kind of students who are going to some of these more elite colleges, uh, you know, they a lot of cases they've been scheduled from 9 a.m. to or 6 a.m. to bedtime. And this is not good for developing a sense of individuality, creativity, and particularly autonomy. And without a sense of locus of control, people tend to get depressed and anxious. So something that allows them to actually have some independence and possibly even go and live in another part of the country could really help with everything from maturity to polarization. Um, But in terms of what government can do, um, the, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm always thinking about losing up um, the requirements for competitive models for the current version of higher education. Because for me, if you could develop a low cost, high rigor program, um, that's, you know, very, uh, that, that, um, you know, hardworking kids who would never dream of going to some of these $70,000 a year schools, um, could actually use that could tell me as an employer, because you know I'm also an employer uh, as the head of a nonprofit, uh, that these you know they've read tremendously, they have good writing skills, that doesn't have to cost this ridiculous amount right. of money. Um, that those uh, those options become more possible as long as accreditation allows for some of these competing models. So I get excited about um, about competing models. Um, I think that some of the state governments have done a good job uh, passing laws, for example, saying uh, against speech zones. 
um, saying that you can't tell students that they only get a 20-foot wide CFO at a public mm-hmm. college. Right. That's, uh, I think at this point, something like eight, eight states have passed these, freeing up um, you know, the campuses to uh, <laughs> the horror of leaf litters on every piece of, piece of lawn on campus, which also generally doesn't happen. And we always explain it's like it's, the world is not going to end if you allow students more free speech rights on campus. So there are a number, uh, a number of things that can be done, um, and I've, I, of course, you know, and I'm just a typical First Amendment set slash con lawyer on this one. More civics. You sure? <laughs> you no, know, I'm with you on that. Civics education would, mm-hmm. I would, that would make me happy. Well, you know, maybe, and you mentioned Cass Sunstein earlier, certainly he, he advocates uh, governmental nudges to get people to move in that direction. So maybe mm-hmm. things that, that nudge people toward experiencing different uh, cultures, ideas, that sort of thing yep. that wouldn't necessarily be overly intrusive. So, so yeah. Yep. But, I, but I guess fundamentally, though, that the problem is that government is sort of downstream of this. When the culture sort of develops these attitudes, it can be difficult to sort of mandate changes without people changing their thinking, essentially. Oh, I did. I did actually just realize one thing that is really dis, really has a disproportionate impact on the way people raise their kids. Okay. Well, and you can pass laws to this effect. Stop arresting parents for letting their kids play in the park uh, okay. or take their bikes to school with their permission. And, and there's been a spate of these all over the country. And it only takes a handful of stories about parents, you know, and, and some of them are incredibly sad. You know, a mother went to work at the McDonald's. Um, there's a park right across from the McDonald's. Her kid goes to play there and the mother is arrested for, God forbid, letting her kid play in the park. Um, and these, and, and almost every single one of these cases, there, there are examples of things that we took for granted that we could do even from, you know, age of six on up. Um, mm-hmm. And so Utah even passed a free range kids law saying, listen, like we're, we're, we're now guaranteeing that we're not going to be arresting people for yeah. um, giving their, their, their kids more freedom. So that, that, that's something that desperately needs to change because even just a, like I said, just a handful of arrests for people letting their kids do um, relatively, you know, common things that we would have done at, at, as kids can really have sure. a, a pervasive distorting effect on the way we parent. So, so I guess there are some things that, that can be done, and uh, that's good. And because yep. I always like to close on a, at least a, as hopeful a note as, as I can, certainly. So on that hopeful note, we will close. Uh, Greg uh, Lukianov, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.